You can open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And this morning we're going to consider starting at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. That's verse 28. Now, last week, our text dealt with this man who is described before as sort of streaked across the sky of the Old Testament. This man whose name was Melchizedek. And as he was described for us and sort of teased out for us in the text last week, those first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 7, we saw that Melchizedek was this man who was the king of righteousness. He was the king of Jerusalem. He was the king of peace. But as much as anything, he was the priest of the most high God. And as priest of God most high, he did several things in relation to the great patriarch Abraham. First of all, he served Abraham a meal of communion, a meal of sacred fellowship, bringing him bread and wine. Secondly, he received tithes, that is, gifts from the resources of Abraham. And then thirdly, what he did for Abraham was he blessed him as the priest of God most high. So this remarkable man, Melchizedek. But I don't blame you or anybody else for taking a look at those first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 7 and sort of asking yourself, so What's the big deal? Okay, great. This man named Melchizedek. Now, in the second half of the chapter, the writer of the Hebrews is going to start bringing to us in great power and clarity why it's so important that we know something about this man, Melchizedek. You see, from here on, he's going to explain to us based on another passage in the Old Testament that mentions Melchizedek. You see, last week we took a look at the first passage in the Old Testament, the three verses from Genesis chapter 14 that mention this man Melchizedek. Oh, great. There's three verses in Genesis chapter 14. But there's also one other very important verse in Psalm 110 verse 4 that mentions Melchizedek. And it's around that one single quotation from Psalm 110 that the rest of Hebrews chapter 7 is based upon. So let's look together first, before we look at Hebrews chapter 7, first at that one verse from Psalm 110 verse 4, where it simply says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, King David, who was the king over Israel at that time, He wrote this psalm as a prophet, as a messianic prophet, looking forward to the work and the ministry of the Messiah. So when David says that the Lord swore, you are a priest forever, he's not saying that God said it to him, though there's a fascinating secondary sense in which that may be true that I won't go into this morning. But no, the real person in view here is God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. That the father has sworn to the son, you, you, Jesus Messiah, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, keeping that in mind, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter seven. Now, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood for under it, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? And not be called according to the order of Aaron. You see here by asking the pointed question. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood. He's showing how significant it is. That God announced another order of priesthood. In Psalm 110. 
You see, we've got to base it on a simple premise. God does nothing unnecessarily. God doesn't change things just for the sake of changing things. He always has a purpose. And if I might say, God never changes something from good to worse. He never changes it from better to bad. But when God makes a change, it's an improvement. Now, therefore, if God saw the priesthood as it was instituted in ancient Israel, the priesthood that came from the tribe of Levi, the priesthood that descended through the family of Aaron, therefore, we call it Levitical, having to do with the tribe of Levi. Therefore, we call it Aaronic, having to do with the family of Aaron. If God saw that priesthood, but then later on announced, I'm making another order of priesthood, a priesthood according to Melchizedek. We know this. We know that it's an improvement. We know that it's better. If everything was perfect with the order, according to the uh, priesthood of Aaron, God would have never announced another priesthood. But the simple fact that God describes a priest according to the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 shows that there is something lacking in the priesthood according to Aaron. He would never establish an unnecessary priesthood. Now, going on now to verse 12 of Hebrews 7, he says this. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. See, again, he's logically developing from that statement in Psalm 110. God would never introduce a new priesthood if it was not necessary. Therefore, he didn't introduce an inferior priesthood with the order of Melchizedek, but actually a greater one. And God wanted the priesthood changed. And if you notice there, it says in verse 12 that it was of necessity. And he's going to explain more why it was of necessity. Look at here, verses 13 and 14, where he says this. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which the tribe of Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Friends, please impress upon your minds the statements in there in verses 13 and 14. He's dealing with a subject head on. That Jesus, that is, he of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, the one who is made a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not from the family of Aaron. Now, look, I don't blame anybody here for kind of thinking, so? So what? What do I care? Well, no, no, no. You're not a Jewish person of the first century. You see, if I were to speak to you, let's pretend you're a Jewish person of the first century. And I were to say to you, Jesus is your high priest. Immediately, you would think back and respond. No, he's not. He can't be a high priest. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the family of David. He's not of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. He can't be my high priest. And then I answer back, being the writer of the Hebrews. Aha, you're forgetting that there's another order of priesthood. An order that's not according to Levi and Aaron, but rather an order of priesthood that is according to the Melchizedek priesthood. And this order of Melchizedek is not only a different priesthood. I don't mind telling you, it's a better priesthood. Jesus, as high priest, is better than your Aaronic high priest. Now, not to put down the Aaronic high priest. They serve their place in God's eternal plan. But Jesus can come along and be a greater high priest. Now, let me mention something just as an aside right here. What I see the writer of the Hebrews doing here is something that's very important. 
He is clearing away an unnecessary intellectual objection to who Jesus is and what he did. You see, I imagine that first century Christian from a Jewish background saying, Jesus is my high priest. I just don't get it. How can that be? He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not of the family of Aaron. And the writer of the Hebrews coming along and very brilliantly and patiently explaining, no, you don't understand. Let's clear away that unnecessary objection. Now, friends, isn't it true that some people today have unnecessary objections to Jesus Christ? They get caught up on this aspect of science or another aspect of politics or something like this. And oftentimes what they form is unnecessary objections to who Jesus is and what he did for them. I think that we need to be a little bit like the writer of the Hebrews and do whatever we can to sweep away those unnecessary objections and say, look at Jesus. Look at who he is and the greatness of what he's done for you. Now, going on now to verse 15, here he's speaking more about this other order of priesthood where he says, And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arose another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, now he's starting to tell us why the order of Melchizedek is better. One reason why it's better is because it's eternal. Did you catch that phrase from Psalm 110? He said, you are a priest temporarily, according to the order of Melchizedek. Is that what it says? How about this? You are a priest for as long as you live, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's not what it says either. What does it say? You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, every priest that came descended from Aaron died his priesthood was limited but you know what's great about the priesthood of jesus it says right there in verse 17 you are a priest forever it could only be said of the messiah who was a priest according to the order of melchizedek it could never be said of a priest according to the order of aaron and none of those priests had the power as it says there in verse 17 the power of an endless life but jesus christ himself has that power matter of fact i want you to think about this there was a moment when the priesthood of aaron and the priesthood of melchizedek came into conflict and you know what that was that was when the priesthood of aaron had a hand they weren't solely responsible but they had a hand for sending jesus to the cross did they not matthew chapter 27 verse 1 says this When the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. You see, among those who conspired to put Jesus to death were some of those who represented the priesthood of Aaron. You could say that at that moment, the priesthood of Aaron was battling against the priesthood of Melchizedek. And which one came out on top? Well, Jesus did not remain in that tomb, did he? But according to the power of an endless life, he rose from the dead and he showed, yes, my priesthood is greater than any of those ironic priests who opposed me. And that's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a Jesus exalted thing. And therefore, it shows us that God has something better to bring us through this order of Melchizedek. Look at here, verses 18 and 19, for he says, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. 
For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see, he says here very insightfully in verse 18, because of the weakness and unprofitableness of the commandment that the law makes nothing perfect. Verse 19 mentions is the law make nothing perfect. You see, the law of God does a great job of establishing God's holy standard. But you know what the law cannot do? It can't save you. Go ahead and go to the Ten Commandments. Can the Ten Commandments save you? Can the Ten Commandments rescue you? No, they can't. The Ten Commandments can show you God's holy standard, which is important for us to see and to try to order our lives by, lives by is it not? But I'll tell you what else the Ten Commandments shows me. The Ten Commandments shows me that I am a lawbreaker, that I can't keep the law of God. The Ten Commandments show me and show you as well, whether you realize it or not. If you look at them honestly, you'll see that the Ten Commandments show you that we need a savior. And so there's a very limited power in the commandments of God to save us. But no, rather, you see in verse 19, that very powerful phrase that the law made nothing perfect. Friends, the law is valuable as it shows us God's holy standard. It's valuable as it shows us the heart and the mind of God. The law is valuable as it shows us that we are sinners in need of a savior. But I want this verse to be written upon your mind and upon your soul. The law made nothing perfect. And friends, this should be a reminder to any of us who have legalistic tendencies in the body of Christ. We have this tendency. Personally, I kind of believe that a legalistic attitude, a performance-based relationship with God, that's almost our default position. We'll always move back there if we don't study ourselves to stay in the grace of God. But if we study ourselves to stay in the grace of God, this is what we find. We find that the law can't make us perfect, but Jesus can. The commandments of God are like an x-ray. They're like an MRI, a diagnostic tool. God looks at the x-ray of my heart given to us by the law. And he says, that's pretty bad. You're terminal. Dr. Law can only diagnose my problem. I better go to Dr. Jesus to get healed. And that's what he does. The law made nothing perfect. It serves a beautiful place in God's role. I need the law. You need the law. But let it be written upon the heart and the mind of every follower of Jesus Christ. We don't look to the law to perfect us. We look to Jesus to complete us. And so we want to stay away from those legal tendencies of measuring our relationship with God on the basis of our own performance. No, we put our faith in Jesus, not upon Our own performance. And that's why it gives us here. Look at this. I love it in verse 19. It gives us a better hope through which we draw near to God. The law does not give you a better hope. Matter of fact, there's not much hope in the law at all. If we want to use that analogy of a medical diagnosis. When the law x-rays my heart and when God that expert radiologist reads it to me that doesn't give me hope it tells me i'm terminal but when dr jesus walks into the room and i put my trust in him that gives me a better hope friends don't you need that by the way don't you need a better hope 
I love that phrase, a better hope. Better than any kind of hope that the world can give. Isn't the world in the business of peddling false hope? Oh, look, do this and it'll fulfill your life. Oh, put your energies in this direction and it'll give you the peace that you want. You know, follow after this path, do this diet, get this thing done, work on this other thing, and it'll all make you happy and filled with satisfaction. Friends, not only is that not good hope, it's often false hope. But Jesus himself comes to us, and what does he offer us? A better hope. I love that phrase over and over again, that he gives us a better hope through which we draw near to God. Friends, if you are living primarily a legal relationship with God, And let me define a legal relationship with God. A legal relationship with God basically says this. When I'm a good boy, God loves me. When I'm a bad boy, God doesn't like me. That's the way many of us live, just by instinct. Friends, this is what you have to realize, is that our standing before God is not based primarily on our performance. No, it's based on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, I don't want to imply for a moment that God doesn't care how I live my life. No, he cares very much for me. But he cares about it from that platform of his love and grace, not from that platform of a legal relationship. Therefore, he says that we have a better hope through which we draw near to God because we have a better priesthood, because we have a better high priest. We also have a better hope and this invitation To draw near to God. To get close to him. I love thinking about how in the priesthood of the Old Testament, everything said, stay away. There were walls and veils and barriers and requirements that told the people, stay away from the presence of God. You can't get too close. But under the order of Melchizedek and under our greater high priest, what does God say? He says, draw near. Come close, draw near. That's why he invites us to draw near. That's why we love to do it when we worship the Lord collectively. Don't you love just to worship God together collectively here and draw near to God to sense his presence, to know that the Holy Spirit of God is among us? What we're simply doing is responding to God's invitation that says, draw near to me. And that's what we do in the name of Jesus, our greater high priest. So now starting at verse 20 to the end of the chapter, he's going to talk more about this superiority of this priesthood of Jesus. First of all, verses 20 and 21 explain that this priesthood is better because it's founded on an oath from God. Look at it there in verse 20. It says, inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath. But he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, the priesthood of Jesus, the priesthood of Melchizedek, it was established with an oath. Do you remember that from Psalm 110? What does Psalm 110 verse 4 say? It says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. God swears an oath to the priesthood of Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the ironic priesthood, it wasn't formed under an oath. It was formed under a law and under religious rituals. That's what formed the ironic priesthood. Now, again, we're not being anti-ironic priesthood. God had a role for it. But what we're simply trying to say is that God brought a better priesthood along in the way of Jesus. And it was certified by the oath of God. The ironic priesthood didn't have an oath. 
But the Melchizedek priesthood was sealed with an oath, a promise from God. Now look at verse 22, where he says this. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. I love that phrase in verse 22. Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The word that's translated surety there in my new King James Version at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. It describes somebody who gives security, who sort of co-signs for a loan, who guarantees payment or, or who puts up bail for a prisoner. Do you understand what this means? It means that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant with God. Have you ever wondered, Lord, how can I know? How can I know that it's all for real? How can I know that all these wonderful promises that are declared to me through the good news of Jesus Christ? How can I know the forgiveness? How can I know that peace with God? How can I know that an eternal future with you is all settled? What can you do to prove it to me? And God says, I swear to you, I give you the promise. I give you the guarantee. I give you the down payment of my son himself. Isn't that beautiful? Not something that Jesus said, not something that Jesus paid, but Jesus himself. Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. He says this. I love you so much and I'm so anxious to prove it. I put myself on the line. I'll stand as the guarantee. I'll be the co-signer. I'll be the one who gives you bail so that you can be freed from your prison of doubt and fear. Jesus himself becomes the guarantee of that better covenant. Now, friends. No high priest, according to the order of Aaron, ever could or would do such a thing. But our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, he becomes the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, the old covenant had a mediator, but no one to guarantee the people's side of the covenant. Therefore, they continually failed under it. But the new covenant that God makes with us, it has a guarantee. Jesus signs it for us. Therefore, the new covenant depends on what Jesus did and not on and on, on who Jesus is, not on what we do or who we are. He is the guarantee of the covenant and we are not. That's why he can use that phrase. I love it there in verse 19 by so much more. That's how great Jesus's work is with this by so much more. But that's not all. Look at verse 23. Now he's going to describe how it's better because it has an unchanging priesthood. Look at it here. Verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that idea there. Verse 23, how he says there were many priests, the priesthood of the law of Moses, the Aaronic priesthood. It constantly changed. You know, you might have a good high priest in one generation and then the next high priest, maybe he was a scoundrel. It didn't matter. It was a hereditary office. Didn't really care about the character of the man. So it was changeable. You'd have one and then another and then a third and then a fourth. It could be better or worse through the years, depending on the character of the priest. But in contrast, look at it there in verse 24. Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. He has a permanent priesthood. You know what? You don't have to worry about a bad priest replacing Jesus. He is in his office as high priest forever. Friends, I hope that gives you some peace. It gives you some confidence. 
the sweetness of Jesus and his work in your life, it's not going to change. If anything, you'll only experience it to be better as you draw closer and closer to Jesus. And because of this power of an unchanging priesthood, look at what it says there in verse 25. It says that he is also able to save to the uttermost. The the unchanging nature of Jesus' priesthood means that the salvation that he gives is permanent. It's unchanging. It's secure. And I find this fascinating. Most people read that verse, Hebrews 7.25, as if it said that Jesus is able to save from the uttermost. But friends, that's not what it says. It doesn't say he's able to save from the uttermost. No, actually, it says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost because Jesus is our high priest forever. He can save us forever. You know, around the turn of the 20th century, there was a great American evangelist named Billy Sunday. Anybody ever hear of Billy Sunday? Billy Sunday had a famous sermon that he used to preach where he used to talk about his life before he came to Christ. He was actually a professional baseball player and somewhat of a celebrity before he ever came to Jesus and became an evangelist. But the other thing you should know about Billy Sunday before he came to Christ is that he was a drunk. He was an alcoholic. He was a bad alcoholic. Matter of fact, he was what you might call a gutter drunk because he spent a lot of his time collapsed in gutters. So you know how Billy Sunday liked to preach this? He liked to say that Jesus can save from the gutter most. That's a great line for a sermon, isn't it? But that's not what it's talking about here in Hebrews chapter 7. No, it's a beautiful thing. And I want you to know Jesus really can save from the uttermost. Or could I say it? From the guttermost. It doesn't matter what gutter you or somebody else might find yourself in this morning. Jesus Christ is able to save. Jesus Christ is able to rescue. I wonder if there's somebody who thinks that they're too far gone. They're saying, no, I'm too given over to my addictions. No, I'm too much in slavery to my bad habits. No, no, no. My life has been so sordid, so evil that there's no saving me. Would you get that out of your mind? I say this solemnly. I don't care if you believe that you've made a pact with the devil. Jesus Christ can save you because he's stronger than the devil. He's stronger than your sin. He's stronger than your addiction. And I'm not trying to apply for a moment that it's easy or that you can wave a magic wand of Jesus over your difficulties. No, there might be a hard road of discipleship in front of you. But Jesus Christ is able to save you from the uttermost. But just as gloriously, as it says right here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save you to the uttermost. That your life is secure in Jesus in the future. I wonder if there's not a weary person here. You're assaulted by the difficulties of life. You're discouraged. I I don't know where the discouragement comes from. It can come from a dozen different places, can it? But you wonder. Maybe you'd never vocalize this. Maybe you'd never say it among the people of God because you kind of feel like it's something that's not too polite to say among the people of God. But you feel it in your heart. Can I keep going with this? Maybe you've seen others who have seemed to fall away and you wonder if you're not going to be numbered among them. Maybe you've come to this congregation this morning silently asking, saying, God, would you give me a reason to go on here? I'm going to give you a reason now. Why don't you look to Jesus, your savior, and he's able to save you from the uttermost to the uttermost from the guttermost to the uttermost. 
You're safe in him. Put your focus upon him. Abide in him. Draw near to him. Matter of fact, he says it so powerfully there in verse 25. Let's take a look at it again. It says there, therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. That's what you need to do. Who is Jesus able to save in this way? Those who come to God through him. So why don't you do it right now? Do you feel like you're barely hanging on? You know, you just need a little more adhesive on the very tips of your fingers because you're about to fall off. Friends, listen, you do what the Bible says right here. You understand that he's able to save to the uttermost. Look at those words in verse 25. Those who come to God through him. Friends, that's what you need to do. Come to God, the father through God, the son. Have you been trying to come on your own basis? Has anybody, God forbid, you come to God and you say, look at me, God, I'm so good. I'm attending church this morning. I should be even commended before you. Look at me, God, I I dropped something in the offering bag. Doesn't that give me approval before you? Look at me, God, I've been all good this week. I read my Bible five times this week. Doesn't that make me commended before you? Listen, don't come on yourself. Look at what it says there in verse 25. What does it say? Those who come to God through him through Jesus himself. And this shows us the place of abiding in the security of the believer. When we come to God through him, he saves us to the uttermost. And in Jesus, there is complete security of salvation, even more so because what it says there in verse 25. And I love these words. He ever lives to make intercession for them. You ever wonder what Jesus is doing up in heaven? I don't know, walking around, chatting it up with the angels, talking with the dearly departed who have gone before, marking a calendar to that day before his return. You know, you wonder what Jesus is doing in heaven? I'll tell you one of the things he's doing in heaven. He's praying for you. Shouldn't that cherish your heart? Maybe you feel like you're the most unloved person in this room. Nobody prays for you. You don't even have a dear mother that prays for you. Nobody prays for it. Let me tell you something. Jesus prays for you. You're dear to him. He ever lives to make intercession for them, for his people. That should cheer your heart today. It cheers my heart. I think about it all the time. How precious it is that Jesus prays for me and he prays for you. He prays for all who are his people. All right, let's take it to the end of the chapter now, starting at verse 26, where he says this. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, for the wor- but, excuse me, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. You know, verse 26 tells us that we have a high priest who's fitting for us. You know, the priests who came under the law of Moses, they didn't have the personal character of the son of God. But Jesus is different. Jesus is. Do you notice that in verse 26? He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Jesus is superior in his personal character more than any earthly priest. And he has, as verse 26 says, he has become higher than the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Instead, as verse 27 says, when he offered up himself. Now, friends, I think this is amazing. 
the writer of the Hebrews is actually playing with a couple different metaphors here. Here, Jesus is our high priest offering a sacrifice to God. But at the same time, he is the sacrifice. Isn't that remarkable? He serves both functions. He is both the priest offering the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice himself because he offered up that sacrifice as our perfect high priest. Therefore, it says there in the very last phrase of verse 28, he appoints the son who has been perfected forever. This is our exalted Jesus enthroned for us. Friends, this is why the writer of the Hebrews introduced us to Melchizedek. Not because he's so interested in Melchizedek himself, but because Melchizedek points us to the glorious son so that we would understand and so that we would receive and so that you and I would benefit from the priesthood of Jesus. So I simply say this and I'll say this in conclusion. Come to Jesus as your high priest. Would you do that today by faith? Come to God through Jesus because his priesthood never changes. Come to God through Jesus because he gives you a better hope. Come to God through Jesus because he guarantees the covenant. Come to God through Jesus because he is able to save you to the uttermost. If you come to God through Jesus, Jesus is in heaven forever to pray for you. So we come to him as our priest, even as Abraham came to Melchizedek. We come to him as a priest and we say, Jesus, I remember what you did for me on the cross. I remember it through the sacrificial meal of the bread and the cup. We come to Jesus and we give him honor. We pay our tithes unto him. But then most importantly, even as Abraham and Melchizedek interacted, we receive a blessing from our high priest. So let me conclude this message with this. I want you to imagine That it is the Lord God himself, Jesus Messiah, according to the order of Melchizedek, standing over you and speaking these words to you as a priest, even as the priests of old would say it over Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make the face, make his countenance to shine upon you. May the Lord bless you and keep you in your going out and your coming in. May the Lord bless you forevermore as the high priest Jesus comes to bless his people. Father, may it be so among us. And we pray that as you fill us with this appreciation of the greatness of our high priest, that you would make us truly come to you through Jesus the Son to receive that better hope, to receive that rescue to the uttermost, to receive the benefit of the intercession that you ever lived to make for us. Thank you, God. Thank you for your presence. Lord, would you please lift up the light of your countenance upon your peace? people. Would you please bless them and give them your peace in Jesus name. Amen.